0: Welcome to the 28th podcast in our Genesis 12-36 through 36 sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live-streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10am on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called Failure and Providence. Hey everybody, my name is Bruce, welcome, glad that you're a part of us somewhere, somehow. Uh, I'm trying to think of the best word to describe this past week, gross comes to mind. Uh, I had a gross week, anybody else have a gross week? All right. everybody had a great week, perfect, thumbs up on that, Uh, I'm the only one that had a gross one, so it was gross, I don't know (laughs) how else to describe it. Uh, but I'm feeling better, and a number of you, I know, uh, said that you were praying for me, and I appreciate that. Um, we got a couple of kids that tested positive this past week. No doubt it was my fault, so uh, they don't like me, uh, but they are doing okay. Uh, we need to keep praying for uh, Pete Banta. I don't know, Pete and Kathy, if you're watching right now, and Charlie, hopefully you are from home, and uh, we... Trust that this will be a better day for you, Pete, and we'll keep praying for you uh, and also for Gene. Uh, I guess Gene tested positive, so we need to be praying for Gene and and Joanne. If you're watching, guys, uh, it's be healthy and uh, everybody stay hydrated. Hydrate or die. A good friend by the name of Holiday said that once. Uh, it's, that's the way she lives, right? So we all need to do that. Uh, that first song that we sang "Ponder," it has the line in it, Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. I love this song, Praise the Lord the Almighty. I have all these happy memories from that song. Not just growing up singing it as a hymn, but when I was in choir as a, a college student, that was one of the songs that we sang for a number of different concerts. Love the arrangement, and I still love the song. There's so many Man, there's so many rich things that go on in that song. Uh, Maybe we'll sing it again sometime soon. Uh, But this morning, we're going to do exactly that. We're going to ponder in a new way what it is that the Almighty can do. So much of Scripture draws us to the past, right? Genesis keeps drawing us to this ancient past, these foreign people, these weird things that go on. Uh, But the point of Genesis isn't for us to somehow live in the past. The point of Genesis, man, we are just getting to the, the ultimate climax of the story of Genesis. I love this book. I love where it's taking us. And especially as we come to the end of the book, it draws us to do exactly what that song says, not to argue about timing, about creation. That's not why we have the book of Genesis. It's not to create problems or dissension in the church uh, in minor details, really. It's what it is that's major about the book of Genesis that we've got to keep our focus on. So, uh, we are getting to what I believe to be the most exciting part of the book. And we are going to go there or at least continue to set the stage for going there this morning. So some of you may be excited that maybe the sermon will be better because I had two weeks. Okay. Um, Here's hoping, all right? I I, I hope you experience that. and If you don't, you know, I guess there's worse things that could happen. So, two weeks ago, we talked about a spiral of grace. I got a few people uh, commenting on that, that it was a good reminder that even though sometimes it seems like our lives as Christians and our habits and our problems and our struggles that kind of lock us into this dead-end, circular, going nowhere kind of thing, and that's not the case. It is more like a spiral where God is at work. He's, he is taking us somewhere. He will finish what He started. There are improvements. There are things happening that are good in our lives that God is the architect of, that He's drawing them out, uh, and we've got to cling to that, and sometimes more than other times where we, especially when we struggle, where is, where is all this going, and, uh, with my doubts and my fears and my sins, and because sometimes you just end up feeling like a fail when it comes to uh, where you're at as a believer, and I get that, I understand that. In fact, a couple weeks ago, uh, I went uh, on that theme of, of failure. I went to um, Mall of America, and they had a museum of failure. Okay, so you might think that makes me a failure if I spent money on going to a museum of fails, right? And that's your own opinion and keep it to yourself because I think it has made me a success by going to the museum of failure. I have a few pictures to share with you Uh, just to prove my point that I'm not a failure. uh, When I got to the counter, when I walked in the museum of fail, this gal greeted me and she held up this packet of Oreos with Chinese lettering on it. And she said she would give me $5 off the admission if I would eat one of those Oreos. And you bet, anything to save money, I'll save five bucks. Now, these Oreos are marketed only in China, and I don't know exactly what the package said, but it's something about something about uh, hot buffalo wing Oreo flavor, okay? Yeah, that that draws you in, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> she did say what it was, but hey, it's five bucks off, right? I had nothing to wash it down. So, and, I, and she said, you don't have, have to eat the whole thing, which I was grateful for. I ate half of it and threw it away, and it lingered with me the rest of the day. But I got five bucks off. I ain't no fail, right? And it was actually kind of fun. There were 140, 150 failures, uh, spanning I don't know how many different years. You can walk around and look at them. I thought I'd share a few with you. Anybody remember, remember that car? The DeLorean? <laughs> there, there are a number of reasons why the DeLorean failed. Uh, at least it made it a Back to the Future, right? Uh, but then it, no one bought it anymore. I don't know what the problems were with the DeLorean, but it is a super fail, apparently. Uh, if you're an Apple fan... Like, if your fandom whatever era goes way back like mine, you might recognize this device. This is back from the 90s. It was called the Newton. So back when uh, hand recognition handwriting software was a new thing, Apple tried to market this device. And I remember, oh man, I wanted this device, because that was like the coolest thing ever. If I could just write notes on the screen, and then it would interpret that into a font, right, and save that, that was, that was a whole new tech thing, but it failed because the idea was far ahead of where the technology was and I never spent the 800 bucks on it. Well, so I guess that's another reason I'm not a fail. Uh, so that one didn't last. This is an, a, a bicycle made entirely out of plastic, okay? There's no wonder why this did not work. You fall down once and your bicycle is done, okay? I don't even know who made it, but that one failed. This device looks like something out of a horror movie. It looks like it fit in Halloween or whatever. There is a mask in the picture and it has little uh, connecting points. You'd actually put this mask on your face and you hit a button and it sends little shocks into your face to get rid of your wrinkles. Who would do that? (laughs) It looks like a torture device, doesn't it? So no wonder why that failed. Uh, this, I don't know why it has failed. Lawn darts. I love lawn darts. Did somebody get impaled on one of these at some point? I mean, there's a dark story to it, right? So I shouldn't make fun of that if someone actually got really hurt. But I thought this was an awesome game, and and I don't know, I think it's too bad it went away. I don't know why this didn't work. I mean, honestly, you can get you can brush your teeth at the same time as you eat dinner. Colgate beef lasagna. Who would look at that and not want to buy that, right? It didn't last. He hate me. Anybody remember that jersey? Anybody at all? Anybody remember the XFL? Yeah. So there was one guy, and I think it was the guy who wore this jersey that actually went to the NFL out of the XFL after it failed miserably. I don't know how many games that it lasted but the he hate me guy i think went on to the nfl but everybody i don't know they had to get real jobs i guess after that and finally and my picture is a fail on this new coke anybody ever drink that <laughs> anybody, anybody like hardcore coke fans or crystal pepsi anybody remember that a couple products that did not last long so anyway the museum of failure was kind of fun when things go wrong, whether it's in your life or your family or your company, then uh, and things fail, somebody's got to be blamed, right? I mean, the fingers start pointing, somebody probably lose, maybe a number of people lose a job when there is a huge fail and when money's on the line. Sometimes we just have to admit, when, th- when things fail, we failed. Uh, in, in the, I can't point... My fingers at everybody else, I just have to point them at me. Sometimes there's a reason why there's a failure, and it's because, well, I failed. So, what we looked at two weeks ago was the fact that, well, sometimes I do fail and I'm not obedient to what it is, just like Jacob had an opportunity to be obedient and he was not. So, we looked at those three different things as part of the spiral of grace. Sometimes when you failed, you've got to what? You've got to get back up and get back on the right track. You've been hanging out in Shechem far too long, like Jacob. Uh, and that means you've got some better choices that you need to make. And there is a responsibility that we have in acting on and working out our salvation. Number two, we talked about gathering up. and What that meant was back with Jacob and his family, gathering up those idols but here's the, here's the trick on that. Uh, here's the, the turning point. You don't just gather them up to hide them to somehow or, or potentially come back to them because you remember where you hid them out. You don't hide them. You don't bury them to find them. You burn them. Uh, that's what we talked about, gathering up those idols that continue to pop up. Not just one, one and done, but every day our hearts are idol factories to identify those things that continue to stand between us and pursuing Christ. Identify them and destroy them. Uh, The the Old Fathers talked about mortification of sin, uh, that continual going back to killing it, treating it as if it were dead, even though it, it tries to find life again, then you knock it down and you keep killing it. So the third thing, it was about setting up or that, that stone of remembrance that Jacob and his family had, remembering who God is. And what do we look at? God is El Shaddai. God is almighty God. He reigns supreme. He is powerful enough. He is God enough for all of these struggles that we face, that Jacob faced, that we face today. He's given us new life. He has a long-term plan. He's not just making this up as, we, as he goes along like sometimes we do, and he's made a place for us with him, in him. The security we have, the stability we have in our relationship with God, we are truly set up for success, not failure, as we continue to remember him and what he's done. So two weeks ago, the focus was kind of on us and identifying those fails, those, those ways that we've rejected God, the ways that we have become disobedient, uh, the ways that we've tried to play things out on our own or just ignore the fact that we need to get back on track, a number of those things going in, going on and then joining in on what it is that God has for us to do, responding and uh, replying to what it is that he's putting in front of us. So this week, the, the main question, I guess, that we're starting off with changes the focus. Uh, the, the question uh, right now isn't, well, did, did we fail? Because many times we can easily say, yeah. The question that so many of us has, has God failed? Has God failed me? Has God failed you? Are there times in life where the expectation was high, that blessings would come, uh, that God would come through for me or my family? in times where, man, I felt like I really needed him, and he wasn't there, uh, to experience more victory over the problems that I have or continue to have, the struggles that never seem to go away. Why is it, God, that you don't remove those things? Um, The ongoing effects or consequences of sins that other people have committed against me, the times where I've been left out, hung out to dry, uh, ignored, forgotten? Where is God in those painful times? Does it feel like God has failed you, uh, especially in the big times, the times where there's been illness or, or death or uh, those broken relationships have led you down a path that's pretty dark? Those kinds of struggles, uh, the difficulty of those things that never seem to resolve. You know what I'm talking about? So often we get to a point, at, at some point, maybe you've been there recently where you can say, yeah, it feels like uh, God has left me, God has failed me. I don't see him at work in this. And it just seems harder and harder. And I'd sure like to see the blessing of, of being a part of God's family and knowing that uh, God's presence is there. So I, I know, we can relate directly with what Jacob and his family has gone through, the extended family, so many different challenges and struggles that they've gone through. And even now in the second half of chapter 35, this last leg of the journey home, it's been years, it's been 20 some years now uh, since uh, Jacob left and then headed out. The Holy Spirit's joining us. That's all right. Come Holy Spirit. Every once in a while the doors fling open. There must be something good going on here right now, right? So it's been 20 years since Jacob headed off, and now he's finally, after all the sojourning and all these struggles with the family, he's finally coming home. But even in these last steps of the journey, it's been difficult for Jacob, also known as Israel. Let's kind of get up to speed here in chapter 35. We'll read verses 16 through 29 together. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel, also Jacob, journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Ader. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now... The sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, Nephtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him at Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Man, what a story, right? After all these years, and it's come down to this final chapter where Isaac is now passed on, (laughs) we see what it is that Jacob has before him with his family. All these struggles, these people that God has chosen, and he hasn't removed any of the problems that anyone goes through. And in fact, in some ways, it seems like he's added to the struggles and the problems that they've faced. Many of the problems we can point to quickly and say, yeah, that's The result of sins committed, yet uh, there are those who continue to suffer in an ongoing way because of the consequences of others, of the other uh, people and their actions. And we saw that most recently in chapter 34. You remember back with Dinah and how she was attacked, and then the brothers, their overreaction out of vengeance and hatred. They go into Shechem, they kill all those different men. There are so many times in Scripture where we read and we have to honestly say, why? Why, God, do you keep allowing these things, these terrible things to happen? Like I said earlier, Genesis is finally bringing us to the ultimate climax of that very question, the answer to that question that we all struggle with. Why does God allow this? Why does God work in these ways? So, To understand that, there's two major words that we've got to define and see how they are interacting with Genesis and with us today. Two words that you see on the screen there. Number one, we've got to understand what we mean by sovereignty and also with providence. Number one, we believe and we understand from Scripture that God is sovereign what does that mean god rules he is sovereign he reigns over all over all his creation without any limit there's nothing that is barring god from saying that is mine that is mine you are mine what i've created out there past present and future all mine he reigns supreme over them there is no one greater there is no one who has more power or more authority than God himself. A couple quick passages to consider. One from the original Testament, Isaiah chapter 45, verses five through seven. I am the Lord, God proclaims through the prophet, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light, create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Uh, Then from the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 15, that verse refers to God as, and I quote, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, so that no matter what happens around us or how we feel uh, in our response to those things that seem so uncontrollable. Scripture does not pull any punches ever. Original Testament or New Testament, God reigns over all these things. Whether it makes sense to us or not, God reigns. He is sovereign. Now, the providence of God works, interacts with his sovereignty, but it's not the same as his sovereignty. Providence is is how God cooperates and directs his creation and everyone in it so that his will, God's will, is always accomplished. So you can think of it like this. In short, the providence is God's sovereignty applied. Okay? God is sovereign. How does that work? What does that look like? What is is he doing and how does he do it? That gets us deeper into this doctrine, into this teaching. It is his providence that applies his sovereignty throughout, well, history. So if you believe in the providence of God, there are a few things at the same time that you don't believe in that I think are important to to point out here. So if you believe in the providence of God that you are not, among other things, number one, a deist. You don't believe that God uh, created things and made it active and spun the universe into being and then split, that he's somewhere out taking a break or a vacation or whatever and he's hands off of what's going on. A deist would believe something like that, that yet there's, there's a deity out there, but they're no longer personally involved in anything. They, they've just uh, cut out, okay, and left us. Uh, so if you believe in providence, you're not a deist, and also you're not a pantheist. Now a pantheist would believe something to the effect that creation is not a distinct uh, thing apart from God, that it all kind of works together, that the creation is bits and pieces of God present in those things that we look at, whether it's rocks or the trees or the ocean or the or the air around us. A pantheist would believe God is in all those things. That's not what a, uh, someone who believes in the providence of God would, would adhere to. And number three, a fatalist. Now, we don't talk about fatalism a whole lot. In Greek thinking, especially the New Testament time, that was a big part of how people believed. You just kind of gave in to, the, to uh, whatever it is that's going to happen. If it is, it is. Uh, if If there are gods or beings or deities out there then there 's nothing we can do about it it 's just going to happen, and our actions just don 't matter in the face of fatalism there 's nothing that we can contribute it 's just going to happen that 's what a fatalist would believe. Those things sometimes creep into even today the way that we respond to God or we, we expect him to do certain things or or just a, our lack of faith, or our lack of our ability to trust there. Now consider what Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 11. He says this, "...in God, in Him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? According to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will." There is a purpose, and there is a plan that God is working out. That is providence, okay? It's not just fatalism. He didn't step away from things, and he's certainly not in all these things. There is something else going on here, and Paul directs us to predestination, that there's always been a plan. Uh, he didn't just make it up somewhere in the midst of life. There is purpose in what he's doing, and Purpose in all things is so critical for us to keep reminding ourselves of. There isn't one thing that lacks purpose or meaning in the way that God works out His will and His ways. Uh, so this is where it gets harder, okay? Because what, if that's true, then what about all these other things I struggle with? Or what about these other problems that humanity and mankind faces? If we believe that God is truly sovereign in his providence, then you also believe there's nothing that he just left out, or there's nothing that he has to work his way around to come back to. The best example of providence that we've already looked at in the book of Genesis is back to chapter 22, verse 8. Abraham and Isaac, do you remember the story? They're going out, they're going to make a sacrifice God had promised for years that he would give Abraham and Sarah a son. Isaac is finally born. Isaac begins to grow up. And then what does God call Abraham to do? To sacrifice his only son. Are you kidding me? What God does that? Who, who could imagine that? And then, uh, then once you get beyond that part, how does this all work out? Did God fall asleep at the wheel? What, it, God promised All of this future activity through the line of Abraham and his son. How is that going to happen if his son dies? How how could this possibly work out? What does Abraham choose to do? He chooses to believe. And what does the verse say as Isaac even asked him? We've got the fire. We've got the wood. Where's the sacrifice, dad? And then what does Abraham say? God will provide for himself the lamb. Abraham doesn't have any idea how he's going to do it. The beauty of that story continues to impress on us that God's ways are so far beyond our own, yet he still asks us to trust him when we can't see it, when we can't grasp it, <clears throat> when it actually makes no sense. In God's providence, a way is made where there is no way. It just can't work, God. And what, what you're struggling with or what you're dealing with right now, maybe you're thinking and saying the same thing. As you stare down the obstacles, the problems right in front of you, how, God, can this work? It threatens the very idea I have in you that you are good that you are loving, that you have steadfast faithfulness. I cannot accept that when I keep staring down this thing in front of me. God's providence is not worried about that struggle, problem, or obstacle because God's providence makes a way where there just isn't a way. That's the beauty of that story of Abraham and Isaac. God will provide, and he did. Where there was no way, God made a way. God does his best work in impossible situations. It's then that we got to drop to our knees and say, God, I'm sure glad you're in charge, because what I can do fails every time. But God's providence does make a way. So to begin to understand the providence of God is to grow in grace, in humility, and in understanding by faith of how my life and all of its multitude problems can somehow fit into his plans. And when I begin to move in that direction, I can find comfort and peace and strength in ways that I never knew before because I'm no longer in charge of providing them for myself. I begin to trust that he truly is capable of all of those things in my life, whether it makes sense to me or not. So here's the big problem. Here's the big problem that I struggle with. I bet you do too. When we think about providence, we think of it in terms of immediate, happy success story. If God is at work, it's got to be coming together quickly and look good, and especially in my circumstances. So, uh, thinking of things that are hard to do. (laughs) Sometimes I like to think that uh, if I did enough hard work, if I watch enough YouTube videos, then I might be able to learn how to do fine woodworking, or at least enough to fake it, right? I'm never gonna build furniture. Uh, But one of the things I, I just appreciated so much about my dad, over the years, he had the shop, he had the tools. He could make something fine that was impressive. Uh, I chose a picture of a dovetailing there uh, on the screen. And I I see, I watch videos of guys with their fine chisels and and their fine measurements. You gotta, you know, sometimes down to a a 64th of an inch, right, Uh, to get uh, the measurement just right, to chisel in just the right angle. And then in these videos, it always works out. Now, maybe they screwed up a hundred times first. They, they didn't make the video. But in the final video, they have these pieces, these dovetailing pieces, and they bring them together and, ah, oh, it's like you can hear the angels singing, right? All the pieces come together and it looks just like that picture. It looks just right. That'd be so, it's part of me like, oh, I'll never put the time into it. I know that. I'm, I'm such a hack. There, you guys have been to my house. You see how bad it is, okay? Okay. Uh, if, you know, if somebody wants to fix things, great, come on over. <laughs> that's pretty pathetic. Anyway, I love and I appreciate how when uh, uh, someone who knows what they're doing with the skills that they've developed can create something to fit and to bring it together in just a perfect, harmonious peace. Now, that's what we want to see quickly with what God does, right? In His providence, But sometimes, in fact, most of the examples that we have in the book of Genesis, when God is working, he works through, not through happy situations, right? He's working through painful, difficult times. I I found this great quote. Uh, John Walton is a scholar I've been reading a lot, especially going through the, the book of Genesis, and I think he just nailed it on the head when he said this, we often think of providence as a fortunate turn of events. But providence, more often than not, operates in the context of sinful behavior. If God can only work through godly behavior, there is little he can do in our sinful world. Let that sink in. If if he could only work through good stuff, godly behavior, then 99% of everything else, he's, I hope this works out, right? Because most of what we deal with is brokenness. And that's where his providence is most needed and most readily seen. He he does not, of course, guide Jacob's sons to act as they do. We already talked about it in Shechem. There's no excuse for what they did. His sovereignty in these cases is demonstrated not by overriding the free wicked choices that people make, but by dovetailing those acts of wickedness into his own plan. Now think about that because there may be some pushback in your heart from that one and in your mind, right? Think about that, the dovetailing. There's nothing wasted. We say that a lot around here. There are things going on that are consequences of sin and brokenness and all sorts of dysfunction in our world, right, all the time. God is not afraid of those things. In fact, in the way that he works in his providence, he's going to bring them together and they're going to fit. He's not afraid of the things that we sometimes fear. And he's not a fatalist, and neither should we be. He is good enough and capable enough and wise enough to do what we just cannot see possible. What happened in our passage this morning? What we already read? Death comes at the worst time. What a great example for us to consider. That's a hard one, right? But it happened. Death came to Rachel. Before she dies, she names her son, son of my sorrow. And then Jacob renames his son Benjamin, son of my right hand, son of my strength. Well, what is it? I mean, what what a perfect glimpse into the providence of God at the end of her life. Is it sorrow or strength? Well, it's both. It's both at the same time. How can that be? How can we allow that to be? Well, it doesn't matter really what we try to allow or think we're in control of because we're not in control of it. But both of those aspects, sorrow and strength, are happening at the same time. God is not forgetting one or the other. God is bringing both of those things together. And what else do we see? Well, family problems don't go away. Uh, Even if you wish they would, you can try to hide. Uh, You can try to put it off. Uh, as Jacob did, you can remain silent. Uh, even though Reuben did, and his actions with Bilhah, they're sinful, they're reprehensible. He had no right to do what, what he did in that passage, yet he did it, and there's foreshadowing going on. Not just with Shechem that we saw two weeks ago, and now with Reuben, the firstborn. Uh, it, maybe it's lost. Maybe that's going on there, but I think there's more than that. I think scholars point to that, that there's there's a grab for power in the family because he sees an opportunity. Dad is not standing up and speaking up. So I'm going to do what I can do. I'm going to push things back. I'm going to see what I can get away with in this family and assert my own place and privilege. That's what I think is going on. And so the narrator, Moses, as he writes down the story, he it just it seems so strange. He just drops that verse in there, verse 22 And then he goes on to, okay, and now the 12 sons. Like, what? What just happened there? Well, he did it on purpose because at that point, as he's introducing again all the names of the sons, there is dysfunction in this family. And we are going to see through the rest of the chapter just how bad it gets. Part of the responsibility is on Jacob, on dad. He's not speaking up. He's not speaking into things. There is a bad example of parenthood here, okay? There's no doubt about that. But there is more going on that causes us to question, what is it? And how is it that God can have his way providentially, even in the midst of this dysfunctional, broken family? God's not worried with what Reuben did. God has the ability to still bring things together like that dovetailing picture. So it's not outside, nothing is outside of what God can do To work out his plan and his purpose. So if you decide that God can't or won't operate within the context of bad things, you know that, oh, it's a God thing. We hear we talk about that every once in a while, right? Like, oh, something good happened. It's a God thing. Well, yeah. And all that other bad stuff, that was a God thing too, in the sense that his providence is not surprised by that, and he's going to redeem all things back together. So, we got to throw away that, you know, God does only good things when, it, when good things are happening and, and we're responding because they're happy for us. No, God's providence works beyond that. So, back to the Museum of Fail. I mentioned that Newton device. <clears throat> uh, as, as I read the details on that and what happened, uh, it was a fail. The tech wasn't there, it, it didn't work right. And everybody spent, who knows what they spent on that thing, were out their money because the Apple, uh, in a year or two, discontinued the device because it wasn't working. That was right around the time that Steve Jobs came back. You know, he was gone for Apple, from Apple for a while. He came back. He was CEO again. He killed the Newton because it wasn't working. And then he fought up this new device called an iPod. He took the tech that was working... And they came up with a device that changed the world among all the other devices that they created that changed the world. They used what was there that had potential. They pulled it away from a failed situation. They applied it to a a new idea. And then, well, the rest is history. So many times what we look at right now, it looks like just a fail. But God is at work redeeming those things to create something that we can't see or comprehend at the time. That God is at work, even in the worst and the, the painful and the broken things. So we can understand and we can believe what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 For I am sure that we can be sure, that I can be sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you are growing in the grace and the faith and the understanding that his providence is true, that those verses then take on a whole new meaning in your life. Yep, I can believe I can believe that God is that good. I can believe just enough, just that little mustard seed enough, that he is going to finish what he started and that nothing's going to separate me from him in what he's doing. That's where we got to come back to, and that's what we come back to this morning as we finish. So, some takeaway thoughts regarding providence. Have you ever thought of God dovetailing acts of wickedness into his own plan. Uh, Every time I read that, it feels like a bomb drops (laughs) because the weight uh, of of that proposition, of that statement. Have you ever thought about that before? Is that comforting or alarming to you? I don't know how many discussions I've I've had with people that think that are are just certain because of the difficulty they faced that God has failed. Where there was once faith because of this whatever issue I can't get over, it's because God has failed me, and therefore I'm out. So if you're in that place right now, maybe you, know, maybe you know someone who is in that place. It is a time of challenge, absolutely certain, where the body needs to respond, to listen, and to help folks understand just how great God's providential work is. Okay. Number two, when you pray, is it for God's will to be done or for your will to win? There's been a lot of praying going on recently about health, uh, about where people have struggled right now. And there's absolutely every reason to pray for healing and restoration in our bodies. And I've been doing the same for us and for you as a church. We've got to do that. We need to do that. At the same time, when we pray, are are we also availing ourselves, opening ourselves up to what might God's will be in his providential work in our lives, that even in the midst of sickness, what is it, God, that you're trying to do? What is it that I need to learn? How is it that I need to respond even though it doesn't feel good? At those times when we're knocked down, he may, he may be using that to grab our attention that's been wandering away from him. So consider how is it that you pray? And are you opening up to whatever God's will may be in your life and the life of those around you? God will provide. Last thing, back to Abraham and Isaac, right? God will provide. And even Abraham says, God will provide for himself. We we don't do it. In the bottom line, we can't provide. Only God can provide what is needed. God will provide. So consider how God has already done the impossible in your life. Ponder anew what the Almighty can do. Have you had a few moments, any anytime recently, where you've remembered how God has graciously worked in your life, in times where you've rebelled, you've rejected him, uh, uh, where your heart's grown, grown cold? What is it that you need to remember and how God has saved you, redeemed you, brought you back into His presence, His great? Love and forgiveness at work in your life, putting on the solid ground of the gospel, called into new life, into his presence to be a part of his kingdom work. All of these things that we lose track of when we get caught up with ourselves. Ponder anew what it is that God can do fresh and new in your life, not because you've been so great or because you've created something that he didn't already have. What is it that he's at work in? Yes, Lord, do that. Bring me back in line with what it is that you would have for me, for our church, for, the, for life around us. If he's done it before, he can do even greater in the future. So with those thoughts in mind, let's return to, to the Lord in prayer and uh, continue our worship time together. Father, quicken our hearts and our minds, I pray, I plead that this morning as we consider what it is that you've done, we would be all the more inspired to worship because of our confidence in you, because we've known, we've seen and tasted that you're good, and that goodness has not gone away. It has not uh, left us. It hasn't drifted into a place of oblivion. We've got your good and gracious promises as our strong and sure footing. Lead us forward in a way, Lord, that we will continue to trust that all things are capable because you've created them. You are in charge of them and you are going to finish what it is that you started. God, fill our thoughts as we close in worship so that we will be drawn to ponder anew what it is that you can do this day and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.